Welcome, everybody, to another uh, Optimal Bio podcast. Uh, tonight, we are honored to have Dr. Sean Baker with us. Uh, he's the author of The Carnivore Diet. Uh, he is a, um, as I mentioned, doctor, medical doctor, former surgeon, uh, served in the military, um, has a phenomenal Instagram following, and uh, basically is a revolutionized uh, uh, health and wellness in reference to the carnivore diet. So, Sean, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I always, I always get excited to, to, to kind of talk to new folks and, uh, you know, see what, who, what kind of audience we can reach. So thank you for having me. And of course, we always have Dr. Brandon with us tonight. And today we want to focus on uh, a diet, basically. And, uh, you know, we'll start with Dr. Baker. Um, you know, I read your book, obviously. And uh, for the audience, though, I thought, you know, was there a moment in time where, um, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, he's also a world record holder uh, in the deadlift. And um, was there a moment in time that um, uh, you just had enough and you decided to, to change? Uh, what, you know, what was going on in your life at that point in time and why, why the change? Well, I mean, as you alluded to, I mean, you know, I, I, as a physician, you know, I'd spent, gosh, decades taking care of people, seeing the same old, same old thing over and over. As an orthopedic surgeon, I thought, I thought, you know, unwisely going into that specialty, which sort of prevent me from dealing with the sort of the, the chronic disease, the, the lack of efficacy. You know, one of the reasons I didn't go into primary care because all I saw was physicians wallowing and complaining that their patients were never compliant. And so as a surgeon, I was like, well, you know, I, it doesn't matter to me. I can just, you know, take them to the OR and ram a nail down their, their femur or, you know, put a plate and screws in or, you know, replace their knee and it doesn't really matter. But what I soon realized that probably 80% of what I saw was just more and more of this chronic disease. And it was the same old thing. You know, we get manifestations of, of metabolic syndrome, metabolic disease, whatever you want to call it, show up in different ways and different specialties see that, whether it's nephrology or dermatology or in orthopedics, it's just arthritis, it's, you know, tendon, tendon problems, you know, peripheral neuropathy, so on and so forth. And so um, as I saw my own health start to, start to dip, you know, despite training extremely hard as an athlete and eating a relatively, you know, quote unquote, healthy diet, um, I, uh, you know, I, I just, I saw myself seeing those same things and, uh, just, it just kind of pissed me off. And I was like, I, I can't do this. I'm an athlete. I'm a world champion athlete. Mission for the week. I can't be sick. There's no way this can happen. And so I, I started to really look into nutrition art because I hadn't really considered beyond just eat enough protein and don't eat a bunch of junk food. That was my, my kind of the, my operating, uh, you know, parameters where I, where I kind of thought as long as I train hard, I can do this. And then that worked for about 40 years and by about 42 years, it didn't work anymore. And so I, uh, um, you know, and what I, and probably it didn't work 10 years before that, but I didn't figure it out until I was in my forties. But, uh, so yeah, I mean, I went to this journey on nutrition and I started out with, uh, you know, the standard device, which was, you know, just eat a low fat diet. Eat a low diet. Um, I exercised like crazy. I did lose weight doing that, but I was absolutely frigging miserable. I mean, I was a horrible person to be around the nurses at the hospital. Like we really liked the, 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 the heavier Dr. Baker a lot better because you weren't such an asshole. I mean, it was just, yeah, it's just, I was hungry and tired and grouchy all the time. And I wasn't eating enough and I was starving myself. That was not, that, I quickly realized that was not sustainable for me. So I, you know, kind of just tried different diets, looked at different things, looked at a paleo diet, looked at low carb diets, looked at ketogenic diets, eventually landed on this, you know, crazy, all meat, crazy carnivore diet, which I've been doing now for almost five years now. But um, one of the things that sort of the tipping point for me was really, uh, you know, I mean, great. You can do your, you can do whatever you want yourself. I kind of consider myself, you know, I'm pretty disciplined. I've been a hard worker. Maybe not everybody wants to do that or can do that. And so, I, but what I started seeing was my patients when I started changing their diet to a more low carb meat-based, you know, ketogenic style diet, they actually had more success than I was having with other, uh, you know, with other options. And, you know, quite honestly, I mean, is, is, you know, I'm sure uh, most physicians will agree. Nutrition is not a physician's forte. And we're just, we're just not trained on it. You don't, you shouldn't go to a physician for nutritional advice, nor exercise advice, or really what I would consider health advice. I mean, if you're sick, yeah, that's where you want to go. That's where you can get your pills and shots and procedures. And you might get a pat on the back and, you know, maybe some, some platitudes, but you're not going to get real solid advice from these folks. And so um, what I, uh, you know, but what I started to see um, was in my patients that literally, I mean, I was going to schedule them. I mean, I had them on the schedule for joint replacements. I mean, your knee looks horrible. I would, I'm going to replace your knee. I would put them on a, you know, a diet and lo and behold, they would say, Hey doc, my knee doesn't hurt anymore. 
And it just didn't, it didn't make sense to me the first two times I saw it. I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, we let's delay your surgery because the reason we're doing surgery is because you have pain. If you don't have pain, there's no reason to have a surgery unless there was some crazy deformity, but generally, you know, pain's the main indicator for these surgeries. And so as I started to see that happen over and over again, that sort of tipped me and said, wait a minute, there's something really here with regard to nutrition and disease. And, and, and I found out you know, it basically impacts every single disease out there. And I think those people that don't understand that are just, they're really in the dark. So let's kind of talk about current events a little bit. Uh, you know, Dr. Brandon and the practice at Optimal Bio, um, we, we, they talk a lot about, you know, diet and, um, you know, staying healthy, especially during these COVID times. And, you know, I noticed one of your um, Instagram feeds today and also the CDC came out today saying that 80% of the people, you know, that have either died from COVID or had severe um, symptoms from COVID um, are obese. And um, yet nobody in this country talks about nutrition and diet, you know, from our esteemed health professionals and the government, you know, to traditional doctors. Um, so can both of you speak on that? I mean, why is it so ingrained in our society that we just simply don't talk about nutrition? Uh, I, I, you know, if you want to go first, it's fine. I, I'm going to, I might rant and. and <laughs> Sir, why don't you, if, you, if people know me, I rant forever. Go and listen to you, Mr. Dr. Baker. All right. So, you know, this is, this is, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say no one's talking about this, but, but no one in official capacity, we don't have, you know, certified health disorders. We don't have the CDC. We don't have the, you know, we don't have uh, our infectious disease specialists. We don't have, you know, any politicians really to any large extent talking about this. I mean, some of them are starting to mention it a little bit now, but uh, you know, this is a thing, this is an analogy I'll, I'll, I'll show you, you know, we have had, well, one of the things that I, you know, other physicians that, that, that say this, you know, they say it's out of frustration, but they're saying, you know, we've been trying as physicians to combat obesity metabolic syndrome for decades and it just doesn't work there's nothing we could do they basically literally are throwing their hands up and saying well there's nothing you can do just everybody take take a vaccine and you know hope for the best and, and you know and i'm, I'm not going to say you know vaccines are pro or pro or con on that but i think that the dismissal that you can actually impact people. i mean i literally every day impact people's lives to where they lose weight they get healthy they reverse their they come off their meds for diabetes they lose dozens if not 100 plus pounds i mean that's that's commonplace for me and i'm just one guy right i'm just one guy and if and if we look at you know i use smoking as an example in 1954 45 percent of americans smoked dwight david eisenhower you know what i can't remember what president number he was but he you know he has a heart attack he's smoking four packs a day suddenly we start we we, we recognize in the 1960s that hey smoking might be bad for us we, we launch a government campaign saying smoking is a problem. By the 70s, we've got a lot of policies in place. Smoking is largely looked upon as a problem. You know, it's, it's considered universally a problem. And now we have a smoking rate of around 15%. So we have effectively almost shut down smoking, you know, with enough messaging. You know, if I look at the, the way this pandemic has been handled, I mean, there has been so many resources um, poured into the message, you know, social distance, wear a mask, you know, get a vaccine when you're available. That's, that, that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week on every TV channel, on every commercial, um, on every storefront window, every shop, you know, you can't, you, you walk on the, you walk on the floor and there's some stickers everywhere on the ground. I mean, it's like everywhere. If we were to spend one tenth of that, just telling people stop eating ultra processed junk food, get out and exercise. You know, I mean, they're showing on the video, they're showing the horrible people dying of, you know, COVID-19, scaring people. I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but if you were to put a similar amount of effort into that, like we did with smoking, like we're doing with COVID, we could impact metabolic disease significantly. We are, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We have enough resources to do it, you know, and, and I think, I don't think there's a, uh, a guru, a quack or anybody, you know, whatever you want to call these people that'll agree that they'll disagree that ultra processed food is a problem. We all know it is. And yet we sit there and accept it and, you know, get, get your coronavirus shot and get a free Krispy Kreme donut. Or, you know, uh, you know, it's breast cancer, wear, wear this week, let's have a bake sale and everybody eat cake and cookies. This is a huge, huge problem. Um, you know, and it's, you know, it's like literally, you know, and in the message we see among most dietitians and, you know, and folks as well, moderation is fine. Um, 
the problem is those foods aren't designed to be eaten in moderation. The food companies know this. They intentionally design that so you can't just eat one, like Lay's potato chips famously said. I think it was Lay's, maybe it was Pringles. But I don't know. One of, one of those, you know, is this you cannot eat these things one at a time. And, and we know that. Kevin Hall's study showing ultra-processed food people unconsciously eat another four or 500 calories a day. This is, this is a known quantity. And to not say that this is something that is a problem. When I, when I go, you know, when I was in France, I saw a TV and there was a commercial for some kind of junk food. And at the bottom of the screen, there was a warning, warning, this is junk food, don't eat it, it'll make you sick. We don't have that here in the US. You know, can, you know I mean, just a minor amount of effort that we could put in, we could make a significant difference. But, you know, I, like I said, well, I think the, it's, it's what funding is. It's metabolic, yeah. disease, the, the metabolic disease though, it goes back to 77 when McGovern got through his staff, uh, the, the food pyramid. You look back at the food pyramid, we started becoming high carb, low fat, which led to his metabolic disease. And that goes to a quote I have here. If people let the government decide what foods they eat and what medicines they take, their bodies will soon be in a sorry state as all the souls who live under tyranny, Thomas Jefferson. And I think part of the problem is we want to centralize everything with 330 million people or the WHO with 7 billion people. We're individuals. And the idea that the most important person on your health or any aspect of your life is in the mirror. And we want to defer to these so-called experts who aren't experts because they use the power of the government to influence and enhance their bank accounts by getting contracts to the government or whatever the problem is. So I think what the government got involved in our health care has actually destroyed our health care, and then people do prosper on that. So it's just very frustrating to hear so, uh, these so-called you know, Ivy Tower experts say something. That's incorrect because you and I were trained, like you talk about nutrition. We had no classes in medical school at all. We learned because we saw a patient base be sick. My specialty in obstetrics and gynecology was uh, diabetes. And when I learned after reading uh, Mark Sisson's book, Primal Blueprint, I started applying that to my patients, which was the antithesis to the American Diet Association. And I had patients who were on insulin, the first baby, not just not be insulin, but now they're losing weight, having regular cycles, getting pregnant. And by the way, passed the glucose test because we've been trained that this is a so-called expert. And that gets very frustrating to me. That's why the individualization of healthcare, I really believe medical liberty is going to, is going to set us, is going to put us together. This RD stuff is garbage, but medical liberty, your freedom to choose your body, what you can do for your healthcare is going to be the impetus for true liberty, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, the fact that we have, a, you know, a USDA guidelines, you know, the first one came out, I think it was in 80 or 81, and that was after McGovern's 77 policy where he just right. says, you know, I don't have time to wait for the science. I'm a politician. I got to make a decision right now. And so that fateful moment, you know, and, and I'm sure there were some conflicts of interest there. I mean, basically <laughs> what the USDA and, you know, the USDA is funded largely by agriculture. I mean, this is their funding source and it's grain based agriculture. This is a huge conflict of interest. And so, I mean, basically the, the dietary guidelines serve nothing more than to ensure a profit stream for, for particular industries. And they don't particularly inform people uh, what they should eat individually. I mean, unfortunately, you know, school, school lunch programs, any kind of federal program is set up on this. And, you know, the problem is it trickles down into medical knowledge you know this is what we're this is why we're so perhaps cholesterol centric uh in our, our in our medical paradigm which is which is missing the boat i mean i don't know if you saw the recent uh analysis of the women health study uh that looked at you know risk factors for cardiovascular disease and i mean it was like uh diabetes was was a was a 10.6 odds ratio whereas you know, elevated cholesterol is like 1.3 i mean the difference was enormous and you know if we look at what what impacts that it's it's a difference it, dietarily it's a huge difference in that and so um i think that the problem you know and you know within the medical system can you fix it i don't know if it's possible i mean within the within the within the, the current allopathic medical healthcare system I think it's so independently, you know, so it's, they're so dependently intertwined with pharmaceutical companies and so on and so forth. I don't know if there's a, there's, a, there's a way to fix that system. I think, you know, do you have an alternate system in place? Will the market dictate that? I think, you know, I think I get better results for people just going online and talking to them about health and nutrition than, than many hospital systems do. Uh, and that, and that's a sad reality. And I don't have any resources. I mean, I got, you know, what I can make my own is not, you know, it's just getting out there and being vocal. And, you know, if you, if you uh, get to a point where we have a free and fair competitive market, I mean, people are going to go to where they get healthy. And I think that's ultimately, that's probably going to be the answer. I'm not going to depend upon. We, we've seen that. We've seen that in our, this past year when people are looking for in that fearful state, what can they do? 
And we're being, you know, we are training our trained allopathic, but also at the same time, we now we learn about nutrition study. We've seen things with natural hormones, with, with the right kind of uh, uh, diet. We're seeing improvement. And those kind of practices are growing because people are searching that out. So obviously the goal is to get somebody to be as healthy as possible. So let's just take a, uh, so I had a little story for you, a uh, former coworker of mine uh, who did a ton of traveling for us. And I was in the clinical research business and she would go to these hospitals and monitor clinical trials and oncology. And I didn't know this at the time, but she had an autoimmune disease and she would fly and then she would, you know, land and she could barely walk um, and very debilitating fatigue, the whole deal. And uh, so she decides to take matters in her own, own hands after uh, many years of medications and everything else. And she goes, Jim, I went on a carnivore diet and Sean Baker inspired me to go on this diet. And, um, and she also moved to Hawaii to a much more, you know, warmer climate uh, than North Carolina. And she's a new woman at this point in time. Um, so for those that are looking to make the change, I know we talk about it in your book, but can you kind of walk through a, a simple potential plan you know, for somebody who's eating a traditional diet, let's say, that thinks they have to eat a lot of vegetables because everybody tells you their vegetables are good for you, but they have some carbs and they have the tiny little piece of meat or the tiny little piece of chicken or salmon. Um, how do they transition, you know, to this carnivore diet? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And first of all, I'm going to say, I don't know that everybody has to do it. I don't know if it's the be all end all. We're still figuring that stuff out. But I do know and I see the, the patient you talked about every single day, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriasis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, depression, PTSD. I mean, I see all of these things. These people are new people after doing this, and at least some of them are. And I, you know, like I said, we're trying to figure out, uh, you know, if there's any nuances behind that. But as far as, you know, what I think is, you know, the first thing is what causes many people to fail in any diet um, is that one, they're hungry all the time Two, they don't like what they're eating. So I think that's, that's step one. You have to, you have to kind of fill in those gaps. And so, um, in the beginning of this diet, particularly, and that's why I, I don't really like talking about weight loss as much. I mean, there's lots of ways to lose weight. You can just not eat and lose weight. I mean, there's, you know, how sustainable that is or how pleasurable it is. It's a, that's a different, uh, different topic. But, um, I tell people in the beginning, just get a variety of different sources of animal foods, you know, meats, typically I think red meat is, is, fairly essential for most people. Um, I think having enough fat in there, because if you don't have carbohydrates, you need some sort of energy source. So getting enough fat, have enough variety and, and just enjoy it and eat till satisfied, eat till satiated. If you're still hungry, eat some more, do that for a few months. And that'll get you past these, these cravings, you know, these, these sort of, this, this sort of hopeless sort of power that, uh, you know, the, the, the processed foods have, because I mean, they're, they taste good. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. You get rewarded. They're treats for us, right? Good job. Here's a lollipop or here's an ice cream, or I'm going to reward myself for this. You've got to get past that phase. I think that's step one. Once you've done that, you know, then you can kind of sort of, you know, tailor things and, and, you know, tighten things up a little bit if you need to. Um, I think, you know, the people that have done this the longest and been most successful have kept it very simple. It's just eat, eat some meat, get enough fat, eat enough to your full and that, that eventually works. Now, there's people that will maybe complicate it or tell you, you need to do this or that that hasn't borne out over the long term i know there's people that are really insistent that you have to have this ratio you have to eat certain organ meats and you have to do this and that the data that i've seen and i've i've probably seen more data than anybody else with this because I've, I've actually tracked this and you know we've we've done survey data on over ten thousand people that show that there doesn't seem to be a difference um harvard university who's actually done a study two thousand people are participating in that study and it hasn't been published yet, but I've seen the data that will also show that there's real no difference between people just eating plain old ground beef and those that are eating organs and, you know, the highest quality of this and that. So I, so I think that's important to realize and understand. You don't have to spend a ton of money, do what you can. Now I, the, the environmental impact, and that's a different, different argument when we're talking purely about human health. I mean, if you can afford if all you can afford is, you know, a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, the cheapest ground beef at Walmart, and it comes between that and eating the Lucky Charms in the, in the cereal aisle, 100%, go eat the ground beef from Walmart, you're going to be fine with that, most likely. Um, so I mean, to start, I tell people, you know, get a variety, find things you like, don't don't, if I told you, you had to eat, a, a, you know, like there's some people are having raw meat, I said, if I had to tell you, you had to eat a bowl of raw ground meat every day, I mean, I wouldn't do that diet. I would, that, that's like, that would be the least appealing thing. So find something that you really enjoy. 
make it fun, make it, make it exciting. You know, maybe, you know, you can, you can put a few spices here and there initially until it helps you transition. And you might have to drop those spices later. Um, if you find that they're causing some problem, this is the thing we talked about vegetables. I'm not anti-vegetable or anti-carb. I'm just saying that some people have reactions to these foods. Um, you know, carbohydrates, I mean, glucose is not a problem in the right amount. I mean, my body makes it. I mean, I, I mean, we need to have glucose. I mean, there's, my blood glucose is never zero, even though I don't eat carbohydrates without rare, rare exception. Um, so I'm not anti-carb. I'm not anti-plant necessarily. I'm just saying that you should be aware of the effects that foods have on you. And sometimes they're subtle. I remember when I was practicing, I would have people tell me the grains bother their knees. And I always thought they were crazy. I think, what are you crazy? Go away, quacko. You know, let me put another out. You know, these are people that have, you know, and uh, Dr. Brandel, these are people that have, you know, an allergy list of 17 things. And you always see those patients as like, okay, another one of these, you know, and, you know, and you just, this, it's just the way it was, but, you know, but at the end of the day, they're probably being truthful. And I discovered that out myself. And I've seen that over and over again, that certain foods cause certain issues, whether it's a skin issue or a, a mental health issue or a joint issue. And so we just have to be cognizant of that and not give any, any food a free pass just because the vegetable doesn't mean it's got this halo on it. That's, you know, inviolate. And, and, you know, you just, Oh, it's a vegetable. Therefore I can eat it without, with, without any concern. You know, there's people that are going into renal failure from, you know, their green smoothies when they're chugging down, you know, copious amounts of oxalate. So um, yeah, enjoy the food, learn how to cook, gosh, learn how to cook a decent steak. If you don't know, if you don't know how to cook, and this is, this is something I saw that was really eye opening and, and a little bit disturbing. There was a study looking at, um, I think it was millennials or maybe I guess the millennials, what's the next generation after maybe it's generation Z, I guess who's after millennials. Anyway, the concern was they weren't eating enough breakfast cereal. And you think, well, that's, well, that's cool. You know, we don't even breakfast cereal is basically junk, but the reason wasn't why you thought it was, it wasn't because they were concerned it was unhealthy. They were concerned or they weren't eating breakfast cereal because it was too much work for them. They had to wash a dish. They had to, you know, they had to rinse that bowl in the sink, you know, so they pack as they can open, throw it in their mouth and throw the thing in the trash can. This is what we've come to. So we've got to, we've got to, we've got to bring back, you know, the basic survival school, how to feed yourself and how to cook and not just rely on DoorDash or Uber Eats or, you know, picking up your phone. So I think that's, you know, step one, just eat and eat enough, eat, enjoy it. Let it just relax, just relax. Don't stress about it. Don't worry about counting cal calories and carbs and macros and when to eat and meal time. Don't worry about that in the beginning. Just, just enjoy I me, mean, get some steak and eggs and enjoy it. Bacon and eggs, you know, throw a piece of cheese on there if you like it and go with that for a while. And then you'll transition and then you can kind of play with, but, but transition time should just be, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to eat what I enjoy. So how do you both overcome the, the guilt factor? You know, I love steak, you know, so it's a treat for me. And, um, uh, but when you're eating it, you're thinking, oh man, I can't only have one piece of beef during the week because my doc says my cholesterol is going to blow up. Uh, it's too much fat. Um, my arteries are going to get hard. Uh, so you both see patients, talk to patients. Um, how do you overcome those fears or these guilt, uh, sensations that some of these people have? I'll go real quick on this. Is you know, cholesterol, you know, we, we do an optimal bio. We have a wellness program, adrenal program, uh, bioidentical hormones. But I spend more time talking about nutrition and the word and the phrase that comes up at every talk is what's my cholesterol doc, even though that's the smallest part. So I spend time explaining them 25% of the body's cholesterol is in the brain, 80% of the brain's cholesterol, 50% of all cell membranes, all sex hormones. And I start to tell them what cholesterol does. And I spend some time talking about Ansel Keys' study to let them understand that it's not cholesterol is the problem. And so I hope the guilt goes away and the atherosclerosis studies and stuff like that. So I spend time doing that. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand that. And we give them at, at our office, we give them a lot of scientific papers. I want people walking, well, I want to be an educator. I want people to be their best, their best, uh, you know, health trainer themselves. That's what we do here. Yeah, I mean, I think when you said, I thought you were saying personally how I cope with eating steak and the guilt, and I say I don't have any guilt about it at all. But uh, you know, when it comes to people, gets because I get the same question. You know, what do you and I and I'm constantly a message on social media. Hey, look at my cholesterol and this, and I'm like, look, I need more context. I, you know, like I said, I'm not there to dismiss and say cholesterol is not relevant and has no no importance whatsoever. But I think we have to put it in perspective. We have to realize that um, there is some context there. You know, is the cholesterol 
in the background of a very inflamed, metabolically unhealthy person with hyperglycemia or, or you know, uh, insulin hyperinsulinemia? Are they do are they suffering from you know? Uh, do they have a lot of uh, visceral fat? Um, those things are important. You know, when we look at, you know, cardiovascular disease, you know, blood pressure, you know, obviously there's sex and age and smoking history and family history. They're going to play a role in that. But I think, we, you know, just trying to frame it in a bigger picture and say, look, if you are overweight and many people, you know, so many people are, and you say, look, if I, if I get you to lose 50 pounds, you have dropped your cardiovascular disease risk immensely. I don't yeah. care what your cholesterol does at this point. You have already improved yourself. Now, it doesn't mean there are things you, can, you can't continue to work on, but you've already, just by virtue of that weight loss, have done remarkable. You've done wonders for your longevity and your, your, uh, you know, your resilience to cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, the thing is that uh, I think that, you know, these biomarkers that we have, unfortunately, as, as many people are hopefully aware that these numbers are very fluid, your cholesterol on Tuesday may be very different from what it is on Friday. I mean, it just changes day to day. And the, the fact that we're making decisions, you know, depending on whatever the, 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 the algorithm threshold is, is my LDL above 190? Well, it was 184, so it's good today, but, you know, next week it was 192, so therefore I'm on a statin the rest of my life. That is not very good medicine. I think that's very lazy. And I think you have to look into um, what does the overall risk package look like? Who am I talking to? Examine your patient, talk to your patient, find out what's going on see what kind of diet they're on. I mean, that will have an impact, you know, whether it's relative or not. And then I think there's some imaging studies, you know, coronary calcium scan, carotid, you know, carotid uh, intermediate thickness testing, you know, with the Doppler that can give, can, can better inform us as to what's actually going on with our vascular tree rather than, you know, sort of, sort of looking at these, these markers, which may or may not have the same relevance in all people. Um, so I, uh, you know, it, it, it tends to be a long discussion and hopefully in, in, you know, you would think, you know, I guess we get a little isolated in our little worlds, our little pockets of people that think alike. We think, oh, but everybody knows this by now. But the, the reality is only a small percentage of people, even physicians, actually even think this way. The most physicians, as, as Dr. Brandon will probably concede, I mean, it's a very, it's, it's a grind. I mean, it's patient after patient after patient after patient, depending what kind of practice you're in. You don't have time to, or the luxury to take time and, and get the nuance. It's just like, you know, here's an EMR, you know, electronic medical records will give you a little clue. Here's a little red flag. Oh, their cholesterol side. Don't forget to prescribe the Lipitor or whatever, whatever. And I mean, that's how medicine is done. And there's not much thought given to that. It's just a reflex rather than a thoughtful discussion, which is, I think, I think, I think it requires that. So anytime somebody comes to me and flashes me their labs, I'm like, interesting. Um, <laughs> if you want me to, to discuss this in detail, we need more information. And I, and I, and I, and many people are happy to have that discussion. I think, um, you also talk about, you know, this moment in time testing, but then they, if you're getting a physical, they usually make you fast, you know, for at least 12 hours beforehand. And you had mentioned something in your book about, uh, the liver producing, um, when you're hungry, for example, or you haven't eaten the liver's producing more, uh, cholesterol, I guess, and therefore it could elevate your cholesterol. Is that um, well, yeah, I mean, if you if, if you look at like fasting studies, for instance, you know, I mean, you know, part of that there's a there's a there's sort of a thought about an energy model, energy flux. You know, we're constantly transporting energy, you know, to our cells in need, and so when we are in a relatively fasted state, we need energy to get to those cells, and so we our liver is very nicely able to to create glucose through gluconeogenesis, also able to package and, and transport lipids uh, through things like de novo lipogenesis and, and its regular functions, and so we often see a higher trafficing, trafficking. In fact, there's studies going, looking at fasting, like people fasting for a week, will have a, LDL, will have a total cholesterol that's increased by something like 30 to 70% from fasting. And so you're saying, well, if I'm not eating anything, why is my cholesterol going up? And if that's the truth, then is that bad too? And so, I mean, we've got this sort of, sort of backwards way of looking at things. You know, the cholesterol is bad in all situations, uh, even though, doing things that reportedly are good, you know, are, are uh, uh, you know, not giving the same result. You know, we've seen, we've seen studies where people will say that, you know, these coronary artery calcium scans, which actually show disease can be high in people with, with uh, high levels of cholesterol. And the people that are, that are looking at that will say, well, then obviously that test is no good because we have all of our faith on this blood cholesterol test. Everything is centered around this one test. And I, you know, you'd think in 2021, people would like to say that, you know, and even most lipidologists will say, look, it's maybe it's the APOE fragment, APOB fragment, maybe it's lipoprotein little a, maybe it's, you know, the the the, the particle size or the oxidation percentage of the of the uh, 
uh, lipoproteins and so on and so forth. But still, the average physician, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's it's a, it's such a myopic focus focus on one minor. I mean, I would say minor. I mean, but one biomarker that uh, has so much context behind it. So you talk about the uh, coronary artery calcium scan. Is that an, uh, an easy test to get if you request it with your doctor or are they going to fight you on it? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it depends on the physician, um, but generally, and it may not be covered by insurance, but it's generally inexpensive and you don't need a doctor to get it in. Mo it might be most all states, but maybe if not, certainly most states in the U.S. I mean, I, I'm in California. I looked online where can I get a CAC, you know, CAC test and there was a guy you know, five miles away, you know, I paid a hundred bucks and, you know, I got my test. It was, it was no, it was nothing. I didn't need any. I mean, a doctor met with me and talked to me about, he tried to upsell me a whole body scan. I'm like, no, I don't need that crap. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was just like, you know, yeah, but it was no big deal. I mean, it was, it was just a, uh, it, it, you can get it very easily if you want it. And then some physicians will order it. Some physicians will understand the significance. Some will just say, no, it's not necessary. I think the American Cardiology Association, or American Heart Association rather, has come out with guidelines regarding coronary artery calcium scan and it modifies a risk. And they're, they are using it somewhat. So they're being more accepting of it. I know, uh, I think if you're president, you have to have one. If you're an astronaut, you have to have one. I think certain people in high profile places are required to get this as a, as a test. And some people think it is the, creme de la creme of cardiac risk uh, assessment test. You know, that's debatable, but there are many people that believe that. I have, I have mine done in September. Um, but everything we're talking about right here, the key thing is hyperinflammation. In, 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 in we have three vascular, we have three, three pathophysiologies, vascular injury, immune response, and inflammation, right? So whatever we want to do, we want to lower inflammation markers. That's the key, whatever this is. And the, the crux again then is, is the high glucose, or even high, hyperinsulinemia. Um, that's what we talk about this kind of diet you're doing and talking about, which is, is beautiful. It's, it's an anti-inflammatory diet. You talked about knee, knee pain. My, one of my specialties was, was pelvic pain as a, as a gynecologist. And the first thing I would do sorry, about 12 years ago was take people off all grains. They thought I was crazy. I said, come back in a month, see if we need laparoscopy. Cause my goal as a surgeon is to not do surgery. That's my goal. That's the last respect. I'd say 90% of the women that brought in for that, when they did the diet proper, they stopped eating grains. Complicated. And I came back 30 days later, they're not having surgery. And, and then it's just, it's amazing what these kind of foods can do to, to our bowels. Our bowel is the, is the window to the rest of our body, but it is, it's, it's the keys to get that, those inflammation markers out of our body. Yeah. I think that the point about the gut, you know, I mean, you know, if you think about it, you know, and most people don't understand it, but the gut is actually external to our body. We are, we are basically wrapped around this tube, which is external to our body. So from our mouth to our anus, that's external to our body. And we have a huge, huge inter immune interface. You know, there's a tremendous, most of our a, a large, high percentage of our immune system is in our gut interface. And that gut, you know, unlike our skin, our gut is designed to bring in what we put in our mouth, whereas our skin is designed basically to repel pretty much everything. And so right. our gut is our main inter interface with the environment. And so when that is in compromise, either through uh, microbiota, you know, the microbiome being dysbiotic or, you know, gut permeability being disturbed for various reasons, you know, you see a host of problems with this and it's not surprising, you know, that you see the pain going away. And that's one thing I see joint pain. And I've seen, you know, when with endometriosis and, and, you know, other, other chronic, you know, pelvic pain resolve on diet, you know, and this is a thing about this, you know, this meat-based diet, you know, you know, you can argue the merits or the, or the positive benefit, but what it, what it unequivocally does is it gets rid of junk food. There's no doubt about it. There's no processed food in there. Um, it is something that is um, high in protein, and I think protein is is, is important for health in general. Um, it is, you know, very bioavailable. It is very satiating, so people tend not to overeat it. So there's a number of reasons why people are having success in that. And I think it's, you know, it's generally irritant-free. I think when we look at food sensitivity testing, you know, particularly red meat, very rarely is, 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 is a factor. It's usually something else. It's usually, even within the animal world there's people that have allergies to dairy and sell shellfish and you know uh chicken and pork and things like that but we really see it with beef and so that's something that i think is just you know very interesting it seems to be very easy on the gut the um you talk about inter intermittent feasting and dr brandon talks about intermittent fasting um can you both discuss the benefits of you know not eating every you know six to eight hours and from your perspective dr baker the feasting piece of it where you, I think you mentioned you had what, six pounds of meat or something like that. And then you didn't eat for 30 hours. So can you both kind of talk about that whole 
feasting, fasting thing and how it all um, plays with the gut and what have you? I'll go real quick first, Joe, on this one is that I like this, the phrase uh, time-restricted feeding better, but people don't get that. So they hear the time-restricted uh, uh, fasting, but it's within that hours of time you eat. As you talked about, we don't talk about macros or we talk about no calories. We're talking about enjoy your eating, find your window to eat. And I'll let Dr. Baker go more detail, but we talk about autophagy and microphagy. But the key thing is restricting that time in which you eat, give your body an opportunity not to be pumping out insulin. Insulin is great when it's necessary, but it's a culprit in a, in a hyperinsulinemia state. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the, the intermittent fasting, which is, which is, we hear a lot about, um, you know, I think a key component of the fasting is what you're eating. I mean, I think the eating part is, 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 is every bit as important because I think that, you know, there's something called physiologic fasting, which and we do every night when we sleep, but I mean, there's a, there's a point where you're not hungry and this is where it becomes effortless. And I think the, what you eat makes it that way. And I think that's an important uh, concept. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that humans, you know, long time ago, you know, we can put it back 5,000 years or, 150,000 years, depending on what your beliefs are. But um, as humans were nomadic, it would probably be inconvenient to stop every two hours to have a snack. I just don't, you know, particularly if you wanted to heat them up and, you know, you weren't carrying microwaves and Tupperware dishes around, you know, you had to build a fire, you had to, you know, so I, I suspect the meal was probably a once a day event, probably maybe twice a day, but probably once a day. Um, so I think that that's kind of how we're set up. And I think, you know, the, the other thing is if you look at how, certain foods are digested. You know, if you eat a big bolus of meat, if I eat a big old ribeye steak, it's going to take a long time, you know, many hours to go from my you know, four hours in my stomach, another, you know, 10, 12, 16 hours in my small intestine to extract all that nutrition. Whereas if I eat a candy bar or a piece of sugar, I mean, that's in, that's in and out very rapidly. And so we kind of have this uh, differential way in which uh, our incretin hormones, which, which are stimulated, I think they're designed to act in a very sequential temporal fashion. You know, you know, you've got uh, GIP being activated in the upper gut, GLP-1 activated in the lower gut. And so when you, when you kind of override that with this high concentration of nutrients, whether it's, you know, some cheap refined carbohydrate, and mind you, we never ate cheap refined carbohydrates before, even if you believe we were out munching leaves and stuff like that, which, you know, there's probably some evidence we did that to some degree. But what we do now is we eat powder. I mean, we literally powderize food. It's something our teeth could never do. I think the most processing we should be able to do is what our teeth can do. I mean, that just seems to make sense. When you have powderized concentrated energy, whether it's protein powder, whether it's refined flour, refined sugars, that overwhelms our digestive capacity in a way that we're not designed to have. And I think this is where we set up metabolic disease. And I think that's... Uh, you know, that is a, a huge part, you know, of this. It's interesting because when you're drinking the fruit smoothies or the vegetable smoothies, you're not chewing, obviously, it's going right down your, right into your gut. And from a simple non-medical person, I interpret that as you're shocking the system. It's, there's no warning because when you're chewing, maybe the body has a warning that there's going to be food coming down soon. And when you're just gulping down and shaking, you know, two or three minutes, um, you know, your, it sounds like your body doesn't have any time to process and digest it properly. So it just goes right back out. Yeah. I mean, there's something called the cephalic phase of digest. And we learn about that in medical school. I'm sure Dr. Brandon remembers, but just, just seeing food, smelling food, you start to salivate, you know, you start, to, you, you know, you've got lipase, you've got salivary lipase and amylases, and you've got, you start to rev, rev up the system. But yeah, when you just slam a smooth smoothie or a processed food product real quick, you know, there probably is some sort of, you know, dysregulation that's going on. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, you know, just the fact that it's processed food is probably bad enough, but yeah, you, you've probably also got that factor, but yeah, we do have a, we do have a preparatory phase of, of digestion that occurs it's called the cephalic phase of digestion. And so, yes, you are right about the, the smoothies, the, the smoothie culture. Yeah. So a couple of questions we got uh, from our listeners and uh, that have, you know, pre-populated. So we're going to kind of do some rapid fire things in the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Um, typical, I know in your book, you map out kind of a seven day, um, you know, menu, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, can you just kind of walk us through, you know, what a typical seven days for you looks like right now? 
Well, for me, it's pretty boring because I get up and eat about four pounds of meat and I'm done for the day. I mean, that's <laughs> that's mine. But I mean, I think for for the average person, the average person doing, I'd say 90% of the people that do this diet over a period of time generally eat about twice a day. Uh, you know, the amount varies a little bit from person to person, you know, body habit, body size, you know, uh, activity level are going to have some impact on this. You know, there's there are period, you know, period times, particularly during transition period, people sometimes are voraciously or voraciously hungry because they're just like, they're just catching up on nutrition. I would, you know, contrary to what many people would think, I think obesity is, is a problem of malnutrition. And you think, well, how can somebody who's obese be malnourished? Well, they aren't calorie deprived, but they are nutritionally deprived. They're lacking, probably lacking protein and vitamins and you know, a myriad of other things. And so they're just constantly consuming calories because they're always, always hungry. And so what happens is I think when you initially get this high quality nutrition, your body's like, wow, give me more of that. And some people I've seen women, 110, 120 pound women that are putting down five pounds of meat in one setting. And they do that for a while. And then it evens out, you know, they're like, well, okay, now I'm back to where I need to be. But uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, I can't, I don't remember exactly what I wrote in the book has been a while since I've looked at it, but, um, you know, I, you know, probably, you know, something like two meals a day, maybe a snack in there. If somebody needs it. I, I'm not a big fan of snacking. I don't really have to, I usually don't feel a need to snack, but, you know, usually people can find some sort of, uh, you know, steak and eggs or bacon and eggs, or, you know, a little bit of seafood, if you like it, you know, kind of, kind of, say kind of a rotation in there. And, uh, um, you know, pork can be fine. You know, I think there's a lot of, uh, experimentation in that phase so i mean i but generally i'd say most people two meals a day and if i'd say an average person and, and i get i put this in there and i want i put strong caveats around it. this is by no means an absolute guideline but the average size male is going to eat about two pounds of meat a day and the average female is going to eat about a pound and a half and you can you know divide it up into eggs and meat and, and however you want to do it but that there's wild variability within that but that's just kind of a guideline i i kind of i tend to be a little bit a little bit at least protein centric in, in my thinking, you know, I think that there's a certain amount of protein most people should get. There's some people that tend to be more lipocentric where they think fat is, is, is more important and protein is kind of minimal. Um, I, maybe, maybe my athletic background is, is, is kind of thrown a bias into that, but I like to see people putting on muscle and preserving muscle. And so I tend to tend to guide people to a higher protein amount. And then, if, you know, for some reason, you know, some diabetics, might do better with a little less protein for a while until they kind of normalize or improve their, their metabolic health. But, uh, uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of an outline. I know, I know it's not specific, but it, and, you know, it was kind of funny. I didn't write a diet. I didn't write a recipe book. I intentionally didn't do that. I wasn't really, I'm not the, the world's greatest chef. I'm not like chef Sean Baker that is going to show you 95 ways to cook a ribeye steak. I mean, it's, I didn't feel, <laughs> I didn't feel a need to do that, but you know, most people can figure that part out pretty easily. I think you bring up a good point too, that, um, you know, muscle mass is not about vanity. It's about, you know, making sure that your body continues with muscle mass through the later stages in life, 60, 70, 80 years old, because as Dr. Brandon always says, like, seems like the number one cause of accidents are just people falling down and that leads to hip replacements and that eventually leads if you're older into an assisted living facility. And then, you know, you got 18 months and it's usually, you know, it's curtains at that point in time. So can you both kind of talk a little bit about, you know, maintaining this muscle mass as you get older in life? I think that muscle mass is crucial. If uh, correct in the studies I've read, number four cause of death at the age of 60 is falling down. And Jim, when you and I are hanging out around 75 years of age, we're not going to say, gosh, I wish I had less muscle. So the time to do it is now. And a lot of the disease process, kidney disease, things like that, doctors say, classically trained doctors say, don't do protein. Protein puts stress on the kidneys. No, it's just, it's a filter losing protein. All of us are made from protein. Without that protein source as our, as our building block, I think that's why protein is such healing. As a surgeon, when I was in Africa in 2007 doing surgery, you could see their lack of, when I was opening their bellies up, their, 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 their bodies, their lack of protein led to such very bad tissue because protein is necessary as a building block for our bodies. So I think uh, protein is, is an essential part to healing. So I, get, I think build our strength now where we can so that when we age, we can age gracefully. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that, you know, there was a there was a recent study. I think a journal, one of the dermatology journals, looked at scar healing in vegans, uh, and saw significant problems. A lot of you know wound diastasis, you know, where the wound opens up, and atrophic scar healing, where they don't have a robust healing response. And so we see that over and over again with protein. That and all of us were trained to look at albumin and nutritional status, and you know we know that their their levels are a certain level. They're not going to do surgically, but we didn't have a dietary strategy. It was 
refer this to the dietitian and they put them on, you know, insure, they give them some kind of TPN or something like that, which is garbage, you know, typically some seed oil garbage. But I think with regard to strength and muscle mass and, and longevity, um, there are, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of data that, that points to preserving, particularly strength. You know, and I think that's the, the metric most people have seen the most association with longevity. And there's a Honolulu longevity study, which showed that, you know, if you were in the top quartile for grip strength and grip strength, maybe not the best measure of body strength, but it's a decent proxy. Um, you had something like a 250% likelihood of reaching to hundred years of age. So, I mean, strength is very, very important. Um, and muscle mass is certainly correlated to strength. I mean, there's, there's, they don't correlate hundred percent, but yes, keeping muscle mass on you is incredibly important, and particularly as you get older and, you know, just for quality of life, you know, you know, you don't want to be the guy that needs his bags carried from the grocery store. I mean, that's that, you know, or you're, you know, you're stuck on your kyphotic and walking around with a walker at 72 years of age. I mean, that's no quality of life. You know, I mean, you should be, you know, climbing mountains at that age, as far as I'm concerned. And so, uh, yeah, you've got to maintain muscle mass. You've got to do, and, and you know, it's diet has a big role in that. Strength training is equally important. So we have to, you know, I know we're talking focusing on diet, but I think exercise, strength training, you know, all these things are uh, wonderfully important, you know, for for everyone to do. So a lot of these diets uh, follow this ninety ten rule, where you stick to ninety percent of the diet, and every once in a while you can indulge and cheat. Um, so if you um, one of the questions from, again, our, our patients is, Hey, do you ever cheat? And if so, what do you cheat with? <laughs> is, is that directly to me? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so th this is, a, this is a good question. So, um, I don't sort of plan to cheat. I don't have like a cheat meal week or day or whatever. I don't sit and do that. Um, I have had on my children's birthday, not, not all the time and not every one of them, but, you know, in the last five years, I think I've had three or four pieces of cake on my kid's birthday. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to come off my diet, it's not going to be for broccoli because I, I don't even like broccoli. I mean, this is like, you know, it's a, I mean, I'll have a piece of cake every once in a great while. And I mean, literally it's every once in a great, it's like six, eight months, you know? And I, I remember I had one time on my son's birthday and I got violently sick. I was just like this, something's in this food that I'm not used to. I'm not used to eating this whatever is in it, you know, there's, you know, you know, anytime you pick up a cake, there's, there's 75 ingredients on there, you know, unless you make it. Right. yourself. So, I mean, I was out I literally in the backyard puking my guts. out. <laughs> I was like, well, this sucks. And then my daughter had a birthday. Uh, I don't know. It was, you know, eight months later. And I said, oh, okay, I'll have, I'll have a little piece of cake. And I did okay with that one, but I, it's not something, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a vegan. I'm not a reverse vegan. This isn't dogma to me. This isn't ideology. This is, you know, what are you going to do to live? You know, you know, as, as, as happy as you want to be. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's up to you, you know, the 90-10 rule. If it works for you, it's fine. The problem is for most people, the 90-20 rule becomes a 50-50 rule or the 10-90 rule. I mean, that's the problem is, is you've got so many people that are hopelessly whatever. They've, they've got these these food addictions. And this is why I talk about the beginning, getting over these food addictions. But but these people that, you know, they go on a diet for three, four months and then they, they do well, but they don't really solve that food addiction issue. And then that, that 10%, you know, I'm just gonna give myself a cheat day becomes a cheat week and then it becomes a lifestyle pattern again. And so if you can't, if you can't refrain from that, then don't bother, you know? And I think it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know how many reformed heroin addicts are out there that are just shooting up occasionally. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's probably not many, maybe there's a few out there, but I don't know that how many people can do that. And food, I mean, quite honestly, I mean, you know, you, I think the analogy is valid. I think the process of food particularly is, very drug-like. And I think there's people that have serious problems and addictions with that. And I think it's, the problem is it's ubiquitous. It is everywhere. It is legal and it's encouraged, and, you know? And so it's kind of like, that's a tough one to deal with. And so you've got to be, uh, you've got to be uh, very, very, you've got to have a very, very good resolve physiologic. And so you have to have the physiology. I think the physiology has got to be there in the first place. You can't be hungry. You can't walk by the break room, the office break room with cakes and be hungry all the time. You are eventually going to cave. So you have to figure that out. And that's the physio. That's why I tell people just eat enough steak, get a bunch of fatty ribeyes and whatever. Eat to your full, eat till you don't care about anything. And if they ask me how much do I need to eat, I say, eat till you don't want cupcakes anymore or whatever, fill in your blank food. That strategy works, you know, to get people to this transition period. But, uh, you know, as far as, I will tell you that, you know, when I did, when I did study, when we look again, we do, we've got survey data on this stuff and hopefully we'll formalize some of this stuff in scientific studies, but 
you know, with 10,000 people, we've got, you know, we've got people that are different degrees of compliance, 70%, 80%, 90%, and, and 100%. And we watch the, the number of people, the efficacy for, you know, improvements in certain conditions, diseases coming off medications. And from 70% to 80% went up pretty high. And then 89 was a pretty decent jump. And then from 90 to 100 was a small jump. It wasn't that big. So there's some wiggle room in there. But um, what we see is, you know, you know, that for certain conditions, you know, you, you've got to be more, more strict. And I think some people with severe autoimmune disease, severe gut disease, gut diseases and things like that. Like you can treat, you know, run-of-the-mill generic vanilla diabetes. There's a lot of ways to make that better. Sure. I mean, we, don't, we don't do that very successfully in medicine because we're stupid. But I mean, there's, you know, if you just, if you just do a decent diet, most people are going to improve that to some degree. But, you know, some of these really tricky problems like, these, these, uh, you know, autoimmune diseases, you know, I've seen something like Ehlers-Danlos, which really freaked me out that that got better. I mean, there, this is a, this is a, this is a connective tissue disorder where it's a genetic disorder where people just don't produce connective tissue in the correct or collagen in the correct way. And they have lax joints. And I had a, another physician, in fact, she was a 57 year old emergency room physician was literally waking up every single morning with two, three, four joints completely dislocated. So her morning ritual was put her shoulder back in place, put her ankle back in place, put on her clothes, go to work. Maybe something pops out of work, has to put it back in at work while she's working as an ER physician. Been dealing with this for decades. She went on a carnivore diet within one month. She's like, my joints stopped, stopped dislocating. Wow. A few months later that she's in the gym lifting weights. She's now lost 40 pounds, has not had a dislocation in years now. This, this was just mind blowing to me. And I was, trying, I was trying to figure out how the hell could it affect a genetic tissue disorder, but somehow it does. And maybe it's an epigenetic um, you know, modifier of the, you know, the genetic uh, uh, expression, but uh, it's, it's just, uh, anyway, I forgot the point, the original point of the question, I tend to ramble, but. It's all right, you were fine. So you brought your kids up earlier. First off, how was your son? Cause I know you mentioned him in the book. Um, and secondly, from, for the parents out there, for both of you, what are some of the tips that you can, should you put your kids on all carnivore diets at this point in time? Obviously we're going to keep them away from cereal and get them back to eating animal products and so on and so forth. But for those parents out there that tend to be a little bit weaker with their kids, what are some of the tips and techniques you can pass on? Uh, well, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily say that kids need to be on a carnivore. I think some kids would benefit for sure. If you've got a kid that's already on the way to having problems, you know, maybe it's, you know, type two diabetes at, at a very young age. You know, we see these eight, nine year olds. It's tragic to see this kids that are developing autoimmune disorders, you know, certain kids that have some weird things. This may be an opportunity to do that. Um, I think that, you know, you know, kids are obviously in this critical growth time, particularly early, you know, the younger they are, the more critical that growth is. And so it's particularly early on high quality, nutrient dense food, animal fats, animal proteins, essential for brain development and growth. Um, you know, if we look at wild mammals and, you know, you look at weaning times and there's studies have been done on this and they look at humans tend to, to wean very early as, as a primate species, orangutans tend to top out. They tend to wean for about eight, eight years or so. Wild humans, about two years is what, a, what an indigenous tribe human would wean for, would breastfeed for. But despite that, we have this huge brain, a relatively huge brain, you know, 1200, 1300cc brain relative to another primate, which might have 300cc brain. And the only way eating natural wild foods that you can do that and support that brain growth is through concentrated nutrients, i.e. animal fats. Now, modern times, again, we have this hyper-processing of energy. So we can make powdered, you know, formulas and rice cereals and stuff that's really concentrated energy that we couldn't normally get. So a carnivorous, at least carnivorous heavy diet is probably appropriate for kids. Now, one of the things I found, you know, is, you know, when many people, you know, you've got kids and I mean, it's like every 15 minutes they're hungry. I mean, it's like, dad, you know, if you've got multiple of them, then it's not all on the same schedule. So you spend all day handing out snacks, you know, here's a granola bar, here's a fruit juice, here's a this and that and that and that. And it's just exhausting. What I do with my kids is I round them up on Saturday morning. I'm like bacon, eggs, you know, I'll make some kind of, you know, I might make a chaffle, which is a cheese and, and uh, egg based waffle. And I'll load them up on animal foods and fats and I don't hear from them for six, eight till dinner time. I mean, they're good. That's a hack. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a lifestyle made easier for parents hack. You just get them to load up and, you know, it takes a few while to get them used to that. But once they, you know, once they fill up, they're like, they're out of your hair and they're getting good nutrition. And, you know, like I said, if they want to have a piece of fruit, if they want to have a vegetable, if they want, you know, it's kind of fun. My kids, will, it's kind of interesting because my kids, they have no problem eating steaks. In fact, my daughters particularly 
uh, I almost regret doing this. I talked to him about this is a ribeye steak, and here's a, you know, here's the, uh, the, the 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 spinalis part that's really tasty. And my little daughter is always, hey, Dad, I want that part of your steak. So like, <laughs> of course, I give it to her. But um, you know, but then you know, like I said, they will sometimes they'll, they'll ask for you know they'll have meat, they'll have eggs, they might have some dairy. They'll sometimes ask for some fruit. Uh, but they almost never ask for vegetables and I never force it on them. I just never, never felt a need to do that. I think, and they do find they're healthy as can be, you know, they're smart, beautiful, healthy looking kids. They don't have any issues. And so that is, uh, um, you know, what I do with my kids and, you know, it's, sure. it's, you know, if they want to do and they do it, sometimes they'll do a carnivore day. They're like, dad, we just want to eat meat like you today. Okay, sure. That's fine. I have a problem with that. But if they want to eat something else, I don't, you know, like I said, I don't say you got to eat your veggies. I used to, I used to, when they, you know, five, six, you know, six, seven years ago, you know, I, we go to a restaurant and we, they'd order a hamburger or something. No, I don't want a side of fries because that's junk food, but here's a broccoli. You got to eat all that broccoli before you can, before you can eat your burger. And they would, they would sit there and, you know, dutifully eat it down. You know, this is that acquired taste that we all kind of painfully went through. I remember my father telling me, and I, I can remember distinctly sitting at a table eating some meatloaf and he put all these vegetables that I hated in there. I didn't like onions for whatever reason. And they were crunchy. And I just didn't like the texture. And I was complaining about it. And my dad was like, well, you can't even taste it to shut up and eat it. So dad, if you can't taste it, why did you put it in there? And he didn't have an answer for that. <laughs> right? <laughs> but then years later I asked about it. He goes, yeah, I never really liked vegetables anyway. And I thought, why did you make me go through all that dad? But uh, anyway, well, again, it's, we've been conditioned by the medical community that uh, to make sure we eat the vegetables all the time. Dr. Ben, any tips for the parents? Do what your wife says. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, that, I just want to, that's a, that's a very, uh, I know it's humorous, but it's a very important part. Women are the nutritional decision makers of the household. And I think that that is the demographic that we really need to reach the moms and we really need to get on that. My wife, we have seven children and my wife is definitely, she keeps her, she, she knows what to do properly. There's sometimes it's just like you said, it just gets overbearing and say whatever you want. But overall you look at our house and what she cooks I mean, meat dominates about 80% of our meals. And that's just been naturally. I do. I love that salad as a kid. I, I grew up that way myself. Um, I enjoy that. I love spinach. Uh, but the more I was studying this stuff during that time of window, what I try to eat, Jim, is I've been eating like probably 40% fat, probably 50% protein, the rest carbohydrates from fruit and vegetables only because I've been off grains for about 12 years. It's... Um, so I think the more you educate ourselves on what food source really to be, and I still think the time of, of, of around the dinner table or whatever the family time is crucial. And when you have the steaks going, that kind of stuff you eat, I just think the part of the time Jim is hanging out, as you know, you have four kids, two grew up the same way I did, was that family time is crucial. So you want to have the kids enjoy what they eat. And always to the beat, like my girls, boy, they love their carnivores. They enjoy their steak. Yeah, and the other thing is let them cook. Let them be part of the cooking process. You know, That's exactly right. As soon as they can, they can figure out how not to burn themselves, uh, you let them in the, in the thing and let them create, let them cook, teach them how to teach them the skills. Because this is something that, I mean, you know, I, I don't even know if they offer Helm Ec in most schools anymore. I mean, I think we had it in my, my school, my high school or grade school. And uh, I just don't think people even know how to cook anything anymore and that's you know that's you know this convenience food is convenient for making you sick and diabetic but it's not much convenient for much and much else that's right that's that's why guys i just i mean everything we're talking about the last hour i'm going back to one thing all these things became vogue or special from the the federal government experts they're not experts all they have is the power of the government behind them the power to tax the power to influence where monies go you talk about the government, you know, probably some lobbyists. Well, he's a South Dakota senator, which is with the largest grain company, in, uh, you know, uh, uh, state in the union. You see, these things have to be looked at detail. And I'm not saying their motives aren't healthy. I'm not saying my government's healthy motive was not trying to be healthy. But you know what? They're not experts. You are the expert. And if you're lazy, uh, I have a friend of mine that says uh, discipline equals freedom. And uh, that's you, Jim. And uh, that truly is. So discipline in your life is crucially important. I believe we're trained that not that responsibility. Uh, when, you, when I hear you talking about popping food in, it's too lazy to wash a bowl. I'm thinking of the movie Wally, where in the future they're laying on these lounge chairs, just being floating everywhere. And that's what we're becoming at a rate to make life easier. It's becoming a lot less help. Uh, a lot less help. We're watching this transpire in these generations. Yeah, and I've referenced that movie many, many times as kind of a just a dystopian look at the future. And, you know, we see that. And I think 
part of the thing, and this is one thing I was pretty proud of. I never issued mobility scooters to patients. I always said, look, you need to stay mobile as long as you can. I don't care if you have to use a walker everywhere. You know, and we've, we've got this. I think the healthcare system enables these Wally like people. I mean, you know, you think about it, these people couldn't even exist before. And it's not to say they shouldn't exist, but they shouldn't get to that point. And the only reason they get to that point is because we continue to kick the can down the road and, you know, here's a pill, go see this guy, well, you know, whatever. And we're too lazy to, to actually deal with the actual problem and, and, and do the, do the service that we should be doing as physicians. Um, you know, the Wally, uh, you know, <laughs> The, the situation, you know, with, with that is, you know, we have this, you know, the population is getting so sick and no one's, no one's happy. Everybody's miserable. And so some people would, are welcoming these comforts, these, you know, oh, it's too much effort for me to walk up the street. I'm, you know, can I get somebody to automatically walk my dogs or something like that? You know, and, and then we've got this virtual reality stuff coming and, you know, this, this potential transhumanism and having implants chipped into us. I mean, this is, this is, there are people looking at this right now. This is probably for some people will be a reality. Some people will embrace that because their day-to-day existence is so basically pathetic and they're miserable. And they would like, they would welcome the fact that they can just strap on VR or to put a chip in their brain and experience a VR world that doesn't reflect what's actually going on with them. They check out. And, you know, we've seen it was a, there was a case a few years ago, this Korean couple playing some video game. It was like second life or something like that. And they had a baby, a real human baby that actually died from neglect because they didn't, they, they couldn't stop looking at the screen while the baby's over there starving to death or dying or suffocating. This, <laughs> this is what we're, we're, we're going towards. And I think, you know, I think some of us, you know, maybe we're all, we're old fashioned that we don't want that. But uh, I think there's a, there, there's, I mean, this is a, you know, a glimpse into the future, perhaps, hopefully not. Yeah. So I'm going to conclude real quick. Best way to cook a steak, grilled, fried. Uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, what I think is irrelevant. I think you need to cook it how you enjoy it. I'll tell you, I like to do it. I like, I like, I like a uh, typically either a reverse sear somehow, either sous vide, uh, with a nice hot crust, you know, a little salt on there. I'm good to go. I mean, that's you know, particularly if it's a nice fatty cut of meat, and uh, that to me is uh, it's hard to beat. You talk about ribeye. I assume that's your favorite steak. Uh, yeah, I'd say generally. I mean, there's some other ones that are really contenders up there. I like a skirt steak. I like you know, uh, you know, fillets. I like you know, but I, I tend to. You know, again, without carbs in my diet, I tend to prefer both from a from a nutrition and, and you know energy standpoint, but also from a flavor standpoint, meats that have a little more fat in them. Yeah, mine's I'm a little partial to fillet. Ribeye is my second, and strips probably third. How about you, Doctor Brennan? Ribeye, hundred percent. I love. I was a grill guy. I loved it. My wife saw a couple of years ago cast iron, and that crust and the cast iron and that moisture, nice rare steak. I left mine. So we have a lot of people, obviously, in the world today that go to fast food joints all the time. If, if you're traveling, you have to go get something on the go. What are your places to recommend? Well, I mean, you know, again, if you have to, and I, I think, you know, you can certainly get a burger patty somewhere. I mean, you can get and I've been known to eat many of them. I've, I've gone to places like Wendy's and ask if they sell burger patties and they say yes. And I'll say, I'll take 10 of them. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, that's about two and a half pounds of, of, of meat, which is a pretty routine, routine size meal for me. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's fine. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I, I know there's people that will demonize this sort of stuff. And I think that for, for the most part, fast food restaurants have been a blight on society, but they do have beef available and it's usually affordable and it's cooked and it's convenient. And so you can certainly do that. Uh, like I said, we're, we're holed up in a hotel. I'm, I'm not there right now, but we are spending the night. And so I brought uh, an air fryer and a cinder grill, which is a little sous vide device um, in the hotel room. So I can, you know, I can do that, you know, I'm on the go. And uh, so it's kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, you can make, you can, you can generally, if you're, unless you're traveling to some place in the world, some, some place in the world that doesn't have meat, you're pretty much, you're pretty much any, any place in the U S you can find a hamburger. Yeah. Is there a myth that it, the longer you cook a steak, the less nutritious it is, or is that, is that just a myth? I think there's, I don't think it's a myth. I think, you know, the relative amount, I mean, I think just from ruining the steak, you know, on a, of course, on a, you know, you think about people that like, it's like it well done or not your friends or something. No, that's a joke, but um, I, you know, I don't think you've like rendered it useless and devoid of nutrition by cooking it, you know, beyond say medium rare, but there's probably some degree of, of, of 
diminution of some of the nutrition in there. And there's, 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 you know, there was a, there was actually a, a study looking at uh, pigs recently looking at absorption of uh, different nutrients, including amino acids uh, with different cuts of meat and different degrees of doneness. And, and they surprisingly found a variety of absorption patterns. And, and it wasn't clear that the least cook was always the best. It was kind of variable depending on the, the cut of meat and the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the temperature it was cooked at. Got it. So we always went uh, where we ask each of you for five takeaways that you can partake to the audience. Um, Dr. Brand, I'll have you go first. Yeah. Um, I want to just go with one and not to come philosophical, but I believe that's important today. Uh, a guy named Frederick Bastia wrote an essay in 1850 called uh, the law. And he goes through all this thing about how society, how government, the state takes over the individual's life. And in his last paragraph, he says, we got to go back to where we never left. We got to go back to liberty. And I believe that's what we have to do, Jim. Um, I, I believe liberty and freedom is the issue. If you choose to eat vegan or you choose to eat a nice ribeye, I just want to get these uh, alternative motives out of people's ideas to motivate people to do their own research and to be their own, you know, driver behind what they are. But to me, it's liberty, Jim. And I just want to, I want to, I want decentralization and as much as possible. And I think that that idea of freedom and liberty is what I want to talk about. So, and the last, I'll do one and then go try a nice ribeye. If you don't like steak, try a nice ribeye and you'll, you'll change your mind. Sounds good, Dr. Baker. Well, I mean, I can't disagree with that. I think, I think, you know, our liberty is under, is under attack right now in, in many ways. And I think that that is something we need to be vocal and stand up to and, and not, not uh, compromise on. I mean, like I said, I don't, I, I fully support your right to eat a vegan diet or to take as many vaccines as you want or have whatever medical procedures you want to have done. That's up to you, but to mandate or deny based on, you know, whatever, whatever administration's in power is, is very frightening and, and potentially scary. But, you know, I think don't be afraid to question things. Uh, don't be afraid to be vocal and, and stand up and, and say the things that you, you think they're, they're, your, your voice is important. Um, I think, you know, you are your best advocate and you are, you know, like I said, there's a, when it comes to nutrition and health, there are, there are so many studies out there that will support any bias you want. I mean, like I've said this before, if you want to, um, you know, if you want confirmation of whatever bias you have, you can look in the research to find that. If you want results, look in the mirror because right. this is ultimately going to show you what actually works for you personally. And what it works for me may not work for you, may not work for Sally Sue or whatever, but you know, find out what works for you. Don't be afraid to do that. Doctors are your employees. You don't work for your doctor. Find a doctor that's your advocate. Find a doctor that will support you in whatever you want to do. Even if he disagrees with what you want to do, he should be supportive of you. And then, you know, I think doctors that abandon patients because they disagree with this or that, that's problematic. Um, you know, I certainly, we, we maintain, you know, when it comes to meat-based diets and that sort of low-carb diets, I have a list of hundreds and hundreds of doctors that, that you know, are supportive at our website at MeetRx. But, um, and then I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, I think, you know, you've you got to put your health a priority. I mean, if, if nothing else really matters, they talk about health being wealth, but it's true. I mean, you know, you can work your whole life, bust your butt, you get it. I saw this all the time. You know, I'd have patients that were, you know, were just retired, and literally their entire, entire retirement was spent going from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. I mean, you know, waiting for appointments, waiting for procedures. You know, it was, it was just in their, their, their greatest joy in life or, you know, the biggest thing they talked about was fighting with insurance companies or pharmacy prices or whatever. That is no way to spend your retirement. You don't work for that. So, you know, figure out how to, how to free yourself from that, from that fate, because that, that, that unfortunately is the fate of many, if not most people. Excellent. Well, we absolutely appreciate your time tonight. Um, check out Dr. Baker on Instagram, Twitter, and his website, MeetRx. Uh, we wish you the greatest success in the world. And again, thank you for your time tonight. Well, it's been a pleasure meeting both you guys and talking to you, Dr. Brandon. Again, thanks for, for doing this and appreciate, you know, more physicians in this fight. You know, and I think we need to, we need to uh, stand up together and, you know, and, and let folks know that there's a, there's a, there's a large and growing uh, minority, which hopefully maybe one day will become a majority of people that do this. So awesome. So thank you, Dr. Baker, for your time. And thank you for your story. Those who don't read you, those who get your book, please focus on his bio. That chapter one's phenomenal. Yeah. The carnivore diet and good luck with your move. Well, thanks guys. Appreciate it. I got to get back to it by the way. So All right. thanks for Take care. Bye-bye.